Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. With me today for our midweek show is my regular co-host, Cleveland Area Attorney and Republican Factotum, Jay Carson. How are you, Jay? Hey, I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing just fine, actually. You know, I thought... For this show, that well, it's it's been a, it a busy week, and there were some things we didn't get to on the weekend show. So I thought we could start by getting to some of those things that aren't exactly as you know time sensitive, but I but I think we both felt were important to talk about. You know, um, right. so to start off, I thought we could talk about uh, the the federal court ruling that said that President Trump can't block certain people from his Twitter feed because it's a violation of the First Amendment. Uh, and that basically the president's uh, uh, attempts to silence these critics isn't okay because Twitter, at least in this instance, this specific instance is a public forum, which seems kind of weird in a way, because of course Twitter is a private sort of thing, private company with its own rules. And so I was a little, maybe not perplexed, but I was maybe a little bit surprised by this. And I thought, Jay, as our as our resident attorney, you could weigh in on this. Well, what did you think about this ruling? Well, it's this is not the first uh, of this kind of type of ruling uh, in the country. This is something there have been a couple others. I want to say the Third Circuit um, had a, a case on this, and I, I could be wrong on the circuit, but I'm, I'm right on the the holding of the case. Um, the gist of this is, you know, typically um, if the government creates a a public forum um, uh, for speech. They cannot. That public forum has to be content neutral. Um, so, meaning, if if you say, "Hey, we're going to have uh, comments at at uh, city hall at the uh, you know city council meeting," um, you know, the government can't say, "Okay, we're only going to accept uh, you know comments in favor of of you know this piece or that piece." Uh, so, what the, the courts have, have done, and the, the unusual thing, and then again, this this uh, Third Circuit case is fairly fact specific, and I should have looked up and gotten the name, but we can find it and put it on the website. Uh, is that if if a uh, elected official is sort of conducting public business uh, uh, in that forum, if if he's uh, he or she is using it as a a sounding board uh, for constituents. Uh, then it, it does qualify as a, a public forum. Um, now, the difference being, say, if you have just a, a campaign website where it's just a matter of, uh, hey, I'm going to be you know, showing up at this event, come out and see me or, or vote for me or, or my opponent's uh, a, a, you know, a total loser, uh, whatever, that, those kind of things, uh, in most cases, according to what the, the courts have said, uh, would not be public forums because it's not a matter of your inviting the public uh, in as a matter of to conduct public business there. Um, I would agree. I think it's it's a little weird and probably a little overreaching um, uh, to say because at the same time, hey, it's it's your your Twitter account. Um, you know, you ought to be able to uh, uh, ban people um, as you see fit. Um, and hilariously, one of the the them is Rosie O'Donnell. Um, which, <laughs> that is funny. Which one of the, probably the first one, um, but I, I look. I, I think this is an area of the law which is going to evolve a little bit as as we get 
the the mix between uh, public business and and social media gets more and more uh, you know caught up, brought together. Um, so I, I think there's 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 more there are more cases to be out there. But but the basic framework, and this is the what the the court followed in the the Trump decision was was essentially saying, look. Um, this guy uses Twitter as as a public policy tool uh, announcement and and sort of invites uh, comments. Uh, it, it's not simply a matter of uh, Donald Trump private uh, Twitter. Uh, so I mean I'm I'm not I'm not crazy about it. And I think there are more lines to be drawn, and this is going to be more sussed out in, in, in as as things move forward. Or the other situation I think is is politicians can be. A little more uh, cognizant of what they're doing, and and create a clearer separation between, say, a uh, public um, um, the, the, the person that yeah yeah the the uh, person I'm just thinking well, I, I said Congress it was a county commissioner uh, who was blocking people um, between a you know a campaign website a campaign Twitter account uh, versus one that is is actually involved in public business and therefore creating a public forum yeah because. Donald Trump actually does have a official presidential Twitter uh, account. I mean, most people I think are subscribed to like, the real Donald Trump, but he actually has a uh, at at POTUS account right. as well. And so, let me ask you this, Jay. So that would mean while the government has to be content neutral on this, Twitter could decide that they just want to cut off certain people for whatever reasons they decide, and as a private entity they could do that but the president can't do that sure okay sure. okay i just wanted to be clear on that not that they yeah, would I mean, do that i, I, I mean well, let's put this way i don't i don't know that, that case has ever been been brought right. yet um but it, it would be more more in the line of of say you know some networks decide they're going to carry the president's state of the union address and some decide they're not uh i don't i don't know that there's any right uh, you know um you know and but, but i mean some people might say, well, how is this, what the president did, different from, say, deciding who's going to get White House press credentials to, to be part of briefings, that kind of thing, you know? I mean, you, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. No, but well, the, the, the reasoning behind it would be, uh, one, it's, it's, you know, White House press credentials, it's, it's a factor of space and availability, and the room is always only so big, and uh, security clearances and all that. Uh, the other part of it is, uh, you know, Twitter is designed uh, to be interactive. And so here's the thing. If, if, uh, Trump can say, Hey, I'm, I'm not going, I'm only going to give, uh, press credentials, um, uh, to certain, certain news outlets, which he, he kind of played around with at one point. Um, and everybody said, Donald, I can't do that. Um, you know, I think that would be problematic if you were going to say. And again, it's also a little different um, between press press reporting, where you're having people show up to cover a public event. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. As opposed right. to inviting public comment. Uh, I mean, a lot, of course, the White House press. I mean, there's sort of public comment that's kind of embedded in a lot of their questions, uh, but it's not purely a a public speech forum. Like, uh, you know, your, your soapbox in the park kind of thing of, of, look, you can stand up and say whatever you want. Um, again, governments can create reasonable uh, time, place and manner restrictions about, OK, you can say whatever you want uh, between the hours of, you know, 
you know, eight, eight and, uh, uh, you know, five uh, p.m., uh, but you can't do it at three in the morning with a bullhorn. I mean, those kind of things. Uh, but they also they can have those kind of reasonable restrictions, but they can't say uh, we can have, you can have your speech as long as it's pro-government. Right. Right. That's the constitutional issue. So, yeah, you know, I, I think all in all, I find myself sort of feeling like this was a, a little bit of an overreach. But I, but I take your point that this is uh, there's a lot of gray involved with all this. Right. I, I, I would say this this overreaches and I don't know if the whole if it stands up on appeal, assuming it goes uh, to appeal, because I, I do think there's going to be some sort of counter countervailing. I, I think what what we may end up happening is that we create some sort of new pseudo public forum, if you know what I mean, yeah. where, um, you know, the, I think what I mean, the law is going to have to adapt to social media, because, again, the laws that we have regarding this public forum uh, are based on things like, you know, the billboard at City Hall sort of thing of where if we allow one group to put up your thing, something that you have to allow another billboard uh, group to put up uh, something, something. Um, and we, our, our laws just haven't caught up to, to social media. Yeah, ab- absolutely. You know, another big story that uh, we, we would have loved to have covered that the main uh, the main show on, on Saturday was a, a really important potentially important arbitration ruling it was a five to four Supreme Court ruling with the conservative five conservatives on one side and the four liberals on the other side uh, saying essentially that it was an arbitration ruling basically saying that companies may require workers to settle disputes through individual arbitration despite what the National Labor Relations Act said about uh, allowing uh, collective action for the purposes of mutual aid and protection. And so let me, let me make sure I understand this correctly, Jay, is now the, the National Labor Relations Act was passed. It basically, again, said that employees can engage in these, this collective action. It's essentially a right to unionize. Yeah. yeah. But then I think a decade or so, right around a decade or so after that, Congress passed the Federal Arbitration Act, which said that the courts should enforce arbitration agreements according to, well, whatever the terms were in those agreements, basically. And so my understanding is what the five justices in the majority said is, well, you can agree or disagree with the wisdom of arbitration, and you know how I feel about arbitration, Jay. Um, I know. I know I, how I feel about it. Uh, I am not a big fan of arbitration. I think it's another way for the the you know the big corporate monsters to trample the little guy underfoot. But that's okay. I'm putting that aside. Listeners, listeners should know. Last week, I sent uh, Mike a link from the International Chamber of Commerce. Uh, uh, yes. Uh, Paris Arbitration Week. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that's coming. Up. So we're going to sign it. It's it's probably as much fun as Paris Fashion Week, but with more arbitration. Yeah. Well, you know, but my point was, well, at least my understanding is, in in the majority opinion, which which Judge Gorsuch wrote, said basically that, well, you know, you can debate the policy, but in terms of law, hey, the Federal Arbitration Act says this. Full stop. It doesn't say anything about uh, overruling anything about the and the National Labor Relations Act. It doesn't. There's there was nothing given the fact that it was passed after. If Congress had wanted to make an exception, they would have mentioned that specifically, but they didn't. And so, therefore, this is a simple statute, a pretty straightforward statutory interpretation thing. Whereas the four dissenters, uh, the the Ginsburg, Justice Ginsburg, wrote the dissent. She called the decision egregiously wrong, and she actually read part of the dissent from the bench, 
basically. But it seemed to me that a lot of her argument was about why arbitration is a bad thing. Uh, you know, she wrote, Man, you're, you're, you're seeing the light there. Yeah. I mean, well, she wrote, trying to arbitrate such claims individually would be too expensive to be worth it. Amen. And the risks of employer retaliation would likely dissuade most workers from see seeking redress alone. Again, I entirely agree. She points out how much, a, much more of a big thing that arbitration has become. And again, I totally agree with her on every single aspect of policy. But that doesn't mean she's right on interpreting the law. And so right. that's and, where... And those, yeah, those are those would be great arguments to make before Congress. Yeah, and so, you know, and then Gorsuch, in fact, said that. You know, she said that, you know, her objections are to policy, and those are not decisions for the court to make, but for policymakers to make. And again, I agree that Congress erred grievously in not in, in having things set up the way they are, but this isn't for the courts to decide. And I was sort of disappointed that all four of the court's liberals, at least I, at least it would have been nice if one of them would have said, you know, well, yeah, we hate this as a matter of policy, but as a matter of statutory interpretation, I don't think this is really a hard decision as a matter of statutory interpretation. And I hate saying that because this totally goes against the outcome that I want. Well, good. That that's that's the sign of of, uh, of growth, and that's the sign of. I think it was was Gorsuch in his uh, confirmation hearing who who quoted Scalia that said, "If look, if the if you're if you're a judge and you're always you know ruling and you're getting the desire that you want, then you're probably not being a very good judge." Yeah. Um. Uh, so no, look, I'm I, I'm I think the Gorsuch opinion, which is his first, I'd say, real big, uh, you know. Uh, writing the opinion, um, it, it's wonderful and it's very readable. Uh, for you know, if you think this is all going to be legalese and and so forth and difficult to get through, um, it's it's very uh, readable. Uh, I don't want to say breezy, but but he he boils it, it boils it down really well and and um, uh, I, I think comes to the right conclusion, um, and and rightfully takes the. Uh, the dissenters to task for making, you know, what is, what is basically a policy argument. And, and to, to your point, you know, I really think, look, the country is better served. If the cause is you think arbitration agreements have gone too far, the cause, uh, which I don't, but the, the, the cause is better served by writing opinion that says, look, we think this is absolutely a terrible, uh, a, a bad, a bad result. Um, but there's nothing we can do about it under law because we're, as the court, required to uh, interpret statutes as written. Uh, but uh, Congress ought to do something about this. Absolutely. I, That's a much more powerful yeah, statement. Yeah. And I, I thought we would agree entirely on, on on the legal side of this. And, of course, you are not at all unhappy in terms of the policy outcome, whereas I am extraordinarily unhappy about that. But uh, well, long-time to, to listeners me, to know. To me, again, yeah. I mean, so part, of, part of the – as a conservative, I'm, 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 look, I'm happy on the, the policy thing, uh, sort of happy. I'm, I'm more happy on the uh, non-judicial activism piece of it, sure. that we're going to take this statute and we're going to do what it says and, and not impose uh, our uh, policy wishes um, where, where Congress has apparently chosen another policy. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. You know, another interesting thing that's been going on, well, not just in the last week, but really over the last few months, is that there's been this sort of, I wouldn't call it a rebellion exactly, but there's been around 20 House Republicans who are trying to actually go against the leadership and force a series of immigration 
bills to the floor for debate and votes. And they can do this. Uh, the House rules say that you can use something called a discharge petition, which if you can get a majority of people to sign it, takes something out of committee and puts it on the floor for debate and, and, and then a vote. And they were basically been threatening to do this because they really want to take a, a vote on this, which just again re- regards the, the dreamers, giving them some sort of a permanent status. And of course, this is something that the leadership has said, you know what? We don't want to do this because we don't want to take any kind of a politically dicey vote before the November elections. And this has certainly been strongly opposed by the Freedom Caucus and anti-immigration uh, folks who are concerned that this would be some sort of a path to citizenship, which they definitely don't want. And right now, it looks like there's been some sort of a accommodation, I guess, uh, arrived at that there might be something that goes forward. But the question is sort of what sort of language do they want to use? And can it be something that makes enough of the hard right happy about that? But uh, it's really kind of because interesting seeing these groups in the in the party sort of fight it out. Uh, what, what do you thought about this, Jay? Yeah, this is this is fine. Um, back when, when I worked for the um, Ohio legislature, we had a discharge position, a petition um, situation one time. Um, it was crazy. Um, but, I mean, we should be clear to listeners. The, the way a bill usually works is uh, it's introduced, it goes to a, a committee, and then is assigned to a specific committee to, to be worked on uh, after, after it's, it's worked on. Or if, if, if not, uh, the committee chairman uh, chooses to report that back to uh, the uh, – Rules and reference. I'm trying to think what if they call it the same thing in the House uh, as they do in Ohio. Uh, but essentially, it's the Speaker's call. Uh, then, after a bill has been reported out of committee, if, when, and if that bill is scheduled for a floor vote. Uh, now, obviously, what what can happen sometimes is a committee chairman can say, "I'm not happy with this. I don't want to send this." Uh, often, in consultation with um, uh, the House leadership. Uh, we'll say, look, just just sit on this bill. Don't do anything. A discharge petition is this procedural maneuver which allows a majority to pull it out of that committee and directly to a floor vote. So it's sort of a, a sort of a democratic small d uh, type type end around uh, around House leadership. Yeah, and you know, a, a lot of these Republicans who are for this, uh, they're one thing that ties a number of them together. I think the twelve of the twenty are in fairly competitive races. But another thing is that uh, our, our farm system basically in this country runs based on immigrant labor. Uh, And I, I, done some research on this. I wrote some articles uh, on on the uh, on the website. You can actually find them. Around half of the workforce is in certain sectors is illegal. And there are a lot of reasons for this. But the concern here among a lot of folks is they're getting pushback from businesses saying, hey, listen, if this immigration thing, this anti-immigration thing really gets pushed hard, we're going to be in big trouble because we won't have people to, to pick our fruit, to get our crops in and all this stuff. And so they're getting a lot of business pushback on this. Yeah, and so that yeah. I mean that's a big you know motivator, and I think it's interesting too that the the opposition uh, to the discharge petition comes from two different sources and for two different reasons. I, I would understand that Paul Ryan and the leadership would not want to uh, bring something like this to a vote because there would be members that it would hurt and they would be in a tough situation. You know the reason let's, let's, sometimes votes you're damned if you're damned if you don't. So the best way to, to get around that is to to not vote, not schedule a thing for a vote. And you can still that way uh, Republicans who are on one side of the issue can argue one thing, Republicans on the other can argue another. So I mean these folks in in uh, 
uh, tighter districts can can make the argument that they're all for dreamers. Um, but the Freedom Caucus, you know, again, they're arguing against it almost on policy grounds that, look, they just don't want to see an immigration bill passed. Um, so, again, it's sort of strange bedfellows uh, uh, between the Freedom Caucus and, and Paul Ryan in this case. The other thing that I think is is maybe a little interesting just to add to this context is that um, – you know, House leadership is is still a little. It, it's and again, I don't have any inside insight into this. It's simply what I, I read in the paper. But with Paul Ryan stepping down, um, I don't know that there's a lot of clear direction uh, coming from from the top. And again, I, I could be wrong. That's just what I pick up from reading the papers. And if I'm if I'm wrong, I apologize to uh, <laughs> you know to those I'm upset. But I think that that comes in part of it part of it too. And well, I, I mean, think with, with the speaker stepping down necessarily, it loosens the reins a little bit right. and uh, people are more apt to try this sort of thing where, because look, they're less likely to get punished for it. Yeah. Although, I mean, the, the Freedom Caucus certainly has not been shy about this throughout. Well, they're always getting punished. Uh, yeah, so basically. Care. And uh, <laughs> well, also they, I mean, they managed to at least temporarily torpedo the farm bill uh, over immigration concerns as well. So, and this is something that it's not, I, I would say it, it may be worse now than it used to be, but this is not something that's at all uncommon. We see this in legislative politics all the time, where if you have a majority, but you have an element within that majority that's different, they band together and they can actually have outsized influence on for exactly these reasons, because it's all about building that majority coalition. If one group just decides to you know, scream, we're not going to go along, that can cause real problems, certainly. Um and this is related too. I wanted to ask you about this. This is a semi-related thing. I posted this on, on the Facebook uh, group this week. This whole uh, e-verify thing. Now you know what e-verify is, Jay. I do. I yeah, do it's know. that. It's that system where <laughs> it's that system for listeners who don't. That system where uh, employers can, if they so desire, verify that the people who are applying for positions are actually legally in this country to check their immigration status. Now it's only mandate in a number of states. And some people would say, well, geez, if you're concerned about eight states, I think. Yeah. I mean, not very many, obviously it's a lot less than 50. And some people would say, well, geez, if you're, if you're so concerned about people being in this country illegally, if the reason they're coming to this country in many cases is to get work and you want to stop that, if there were a robust e-verify system nationally, wouldn't that make a whole lot of sense? Yet E-Verify, national E-Verify mandatory legislation has basically gone nowhere in Congress, which to some people would say, well, what's going on here? So, Jay, what do you think is going on here? Well, uh, Democrats actually have been fairly front and center against this for some time. Um, I think the last, I want to say 2013 was the last time that this kind of really w- bubbled up that – uh, there was a, a potential to get this done. I'm sure, I'm sure there have been been bills introduced since, um, but it was sort of some stern uh, Democratic resistance uh, to it. Um, so that that I think is is part in of the past. It. But, but of course, also, major- I mean Republicans right. are in majority, so it's not like Republicans said, "Oh, the Democrats are concerned about this, so we probably shouldn't push it." <laughs> I mean, well, you know. no, no, no. But I, I, my sense is, you still wouldn't be able to uh, to get it through the Senate. Um, well, you would think uh, but, if it were this, you know, this really sensible move to slow illegal immigration, that there would be a huge push for it. But we really haven't seen that on the right. Yeah. Well, the, uh, I think in some quarters on the right, you have. Um, 
Other quarters, not so much, uh, based out of concerns that um, uh, it's it's going to be an expensive mandate on small businesses. So the the Cato Institute, for example, has uh, taken the position the fair verify is uh, bad. Um, you know, for the problem that it, it imposes a, a, a mandate on, on businesses. Now, I think they might be have less of a problem if it was paid for. But, um, I, you look, if you're asking me, you know, personally, I, I would be of the uh, opinion that people ought to do this. And that's not to say that businesses don't uh, verify citizenship other ways. I mean, typically, you know, you, you maybe you provide a birth certificate or driver's license or some, something like that. Uh, and in many cases, I think businesses would say, look, uh, we don't need to spend the, the money and the time on, on E-Verify. We can just say, hey, uh, show up with, uh, yeah. with these documents or, you know, here, hey, show me your green card, uh, essentially, that, um, uh, you know, they can get around it they can, or they can, you know, satisfy the requirement that, that way. Um, so Except, I, I think I mean, those are the issues. But. I mean, I mean, fraud in, in that, those kind of, you're right, documents have to be sure, presented, sure. but there's huge yeah. fraud in that. And, and basically, I mean, you're right, it's, the co- it, it imposes more of a cost to hire legal workers. So in other words, basically following the law is, is more expensive. <laughs> I mean, essentially. It, it always is. You know, <laughs> I mean, sort of- but here's the point, that, you know, and this is why I'm for this, is we know there have been a number of studies and exposés and so forth. Workers who are, who are working illegally have a lot less control over what happens and they, the conditions that they have to work under in many of these cases. I mean, we're talking about pretty horrific abuses because the, you know, the business owners can basically hang the, well, you want to stay in this country sort of thing over their heads. And so this is a real disaster for, for worker treatment, working conditions and so forth, especially in the agricultural sector. Uh, and so there's a good, I think there's a good worker rights, human rights argument for this. And what I see is the main reason we don't have this is, again, the business community saying, no, we like our illegal workers because we can do what we want with them and they're cheaper. And I just think just even if regardless of what you think from policy, from a moral standpoint, I think that's wrong. Yeah, no, so, I, I, you're, I, I, I can't disagree with you there. There um, you go. You know, uh, we have a little bit more time. There was, uh, there was one listener uh, comment on Facebook this week that came in that I wanted to discuss a little bit. It's from uh, Tony, who wrote, uh, let's see, my issue is that sometimes you are a bit too much in the middle. I think he's talking about me here. He says, when Paul Ryan— Nobody ever says that about me. <laughs> uh, no, I, actually, I take that back. Actually, I did have, have someone say that to me just the other day. So It doesn't happen too often, yeah. yeah. Well, Tony says, uh, when Paul Ryan wants to cut social programs, he's advocating for the deaths of thousands of people. You need to go a bit harder on Republicans and Democrats when it comes to this. Also, the plain bribery that is going on sometimes, I feel like you are too soft on that. How can money be more powerful than votes in a democracy? So, well, I guess, Tony, I'd say there are a couple things here. Um, With the whole Paul Ryan and conservatives advocating deaths of people, I mean, I've certainly heard that on the left. I, I guess I don't. Maybe there that was, was his, some. That was his campaign slogan, I believe. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I, I understand the argument. Certainly, and in some in some cases, I well, I get the logic saying that. Well, if we do this, these are what we believe the outcomes to be. Therefore, if you support this, you are de facto supporting the deaths of these people, basically, and that's kind of the argument. So I get that. 
But the way I see it, in most cases, people like Paul Ryan are, number one, don't accept, in many cases, don't accept the premise that this will lead to this these deaths or these negative outcomes. But number two, even if they do accept that premise, in some cases, what they will often argue is, yes, there will be these bad things that happen, including maybe deaths in the short term. But we believe that in the long term, this will actually save lives and make people better off. And so I guess where I'm coming from on this and why I'm not harder on these arguments is that I have a tendency to default to the idea that people like Paul Ryan uh, care about the country, want to do what's best for everyone, and don't really want to see anyone hurt or disadvantaged if it can be at all avoided. Now, some people may question that, and certainly I think there are some people who don't believe that, but by and large, that's kind of my default position. And, you know, maybe you say I'm being naive about that. I don't know. I mean, I've talked to people who've held office. Jay, you know, you certainly have talked even more than I have. My sense is that Democrat, Republican, they're kind of fundamentally decent people who want to do the right thing. I mean, they're no less moral than anyone else, I don't think. And so that's why I kind of have a problem with saying, well, Paul Ryan or anyone really is, you know, advocating for people to be hurt or harmed or killed or something like that. Yeah, I, I, I just, I mean, I would, I would add, you know, again, I've, I've interacted with, with uh, politicians, um, and I've, I've a lot of times been, been in the, the room um, when you know people have had serious discussions uh, about these issues, serious private discussions uh, about this kind of thing, and never once in my experience have I, I heard or even sensed. Uh, from someone of, I want to do this because it's going to kill people. Well, sure. I mean, obviously I mean, not to that extent, the, but I think it's well, no, more no, like just being... The, the, the argument is that, the, or, or or let's put it this way, even been uh, in a room where someone would be indifferent to... Um, yeah. Uh, you know, that, and I think oh, that's well, more okay, the argument. Okay, well, millions will die, but so what? I, I, I just oh, but, don't... Yeah. I think it's more like, a, well, yeah, maybe they're going to be face more pain, but basically screw them, they didn't vote for us. Right, you know, and but you're saying you. I mean, you haven't really heard much of well, I mean, that. I mean, either. face face more pain. Let's let's put it this way. I mean, in, in any sort of uh, policy enactment, there usually are going to be winners and losers. Sure, uh, and it's typically economic winners and losers. It's not you're going to die or or or, or not die. So so I mean, if you say face more pain, I guess I suppose that's, um, you know, that's a that's a broader brush. But, um. Look, I, I also I agree with the first point. I, I don't know that we've ever established the um, the whole idea of well, if you cut this social program, people will die. I, I that's that's sort of like the last uh, um, the left sort of last barricade uh, all the time of of and I can remember, um, gosh, work report work requirements uh, being uh, imposed on the welfare recipients back in the Clinton area. I mean that that same. Argument was made um, when um, uh, the Republican Congress talked about uh, slowing the growth of um, of, of uh, Medicaid. Now, again, still increasing it, but but slowing the growth. Again, it was uh, literally pushing grandma off the cliff, and and people will die. Um, it, it, to me, anytime if if you start with the people will die uh, argument, uh, my sense is I, I don't think you get taken that seriously. 
Well, yeah, you know, because uh, it's, 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 I mean, look, in, in most cases, it's really just not a, a serious argument. I suppose there, there could be, uh, cases, um, uh, you know, but, uh, well, I, I think on the other hand, like I, I, I think, <laughs> well, I think given what we know about people's cognitive biases and so forth, I think certainly everyone wants to think that they're a good person and their policies are going to be wonderful for everyone and so forth and so on. So, I mean, I, Again, I accept that, that that in certain instances, policies are going to be enacted, and in some cases, they will lead to deaths of people. I mean, you can think about, you know, you talked about uh, various uh, domestic policies, but certainly when we decide to go to war with somebody. Well, yeah, you know, no, that obviously, kind of something thing. like that, obviously, yeah. And, you know, there have been people who certainly have made arguments saying, well, you know, if there were a draft or if more, if the if the children of more members of Congress were in the military and if we didn't have this kind of separate kind of military class, maybe they'd be less likely to throw us into these situations, that kind of thing. So, you know, I, I, I think there is something to that sort of thing. But again, I think for me, what it comes down to is uh, despite the fact that people are imperfect and have these biases and so forth, I start from the assumption that everyone is, to a to the greater or lesser extent, kind of fundamentally wants kind of sort of the same kind of things. And if you don't start from there, well, then you're going to come to different conclusions, certainly. Um, but the other part of it, the whole money being more powerful than votes in a democracy, yeah, I absolutely agree, Tony. That's you're totally right. I think there's been a you know a history of uh, recent Supreme Court decisions that have been disastrously wrong on this. I've talked at length about how I think the campaign campaign finance system drives this sort of thing. And so, yeah, I mean, money is more powerful than votes, and more so now than ever. And I wish we wish we could change that, but I just don't see that happening. Yeah, I I disagree with you a little <laughs> yeah, on that. Yeah, I figured. Well, let me. Might. I mean, I'll ask you. I mean, who who spent more in the 2016 election? In terms of overall inside and outside spending, I think it was pretty close. Actually, if you want to just look at campaigns, it's a different story. But I'm looking at sure. overall spending. Okay. Um. But let, let's put it this way. I I don't. Again, and the actual uh, campaign money has to go to the actual campaign, and there's there's issues with that. There's also in-kind union stuff and all that. But sure. my, my point is Trump was very much the underdog. He was very much underfunded uh, compared to Clinton, um, and, and, and he won. Uh, I think a lot of, you know, what is that money used for that goes into campaign? It's used for advertising. Uh, and if people – you can you can sort of vaccinate yourself uh, to that uh, if if you choose, um, and and uh, I think that's you know again it, it doesn't doesn't happen as often but I mean look you and I try to you and I try to do it uh, to try to say hey here's the issues here's what you really need to think about here's what to you know what to to think through here's how to think critically, um, and, and you know the message doesn't get to everyone but you know maybe the the reason that the money gets poured in is because uh, uh, it goes to advertising that, that people fall for and you don't have to fall for it. And, and people don't always fall for it. There've been other uh, plenty of times where, where campaigns have been uh, the, the one with more funding has, has not won. Yeah, but um, sure. You I, know, look, I mean, we all say I, on average, the guy who spends more money is more likely to win, but um and, and I'll issue a, a media correction. I just checked. And no, even considering outside money, still Hillary Clinton vastly outspent, outraised uh, Donald Trump. But again, I would say Donald Trump, that's sort of a very unique 
uh, a unique situation, given the nature of Donald Trump and free media and all this other kind of stuff. But sure, you know, I'm going to throw in one other factor though. Uh, when the money is going, where where does the money go? Uh, the money doesn't necessarily go to elect someone. The money sometimes follows who they think there is going to be elected. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's not a leading indicator. It's a trailing indicator, if you will. And to me, I would argue that even more troubling than uh, some of the campaign stuff is the the money, the spending that goes largely unreported, except if you're kind of a geeky person like myself who knows sites like OpenSecrets.org and che- you know checks them out. Is that is the lobbying money that kind of in between elections? Because you know, th- th- I guess I get this. I mean, I do get this. Is we focus and the media focuses almost exclusively on elections and big policy things, but I've said for forever that where most of the real action that affects people in their day-to-day lives isn't there, but it's in, you know, it's in the regulatory agencies, it's in it's in these smaller pieces, many smaller pieces of legislation and other stuff that just doesn't get the coverage. And so that's where money can have a big influence, I think. Yep. All right. Uh I think that just about does it for this well, it was it wasn't exactly a listener comment episode, though we did get one in. But I think it was good that we were able to get in some of that extra, extra stuff we weren't able to fit in. Hey, again, I extra mentioned this stuff. Yeah. There you go. I mentioned this on the Saturday show. Uh, it, it would really help us out a lot if you could take, if you haven't already, take this super short survey. I promise you. Literally, I bet you'll get it done in 30 seconds. Uh, it's at survey.libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N.com slash politics guys. Super short, super simple. It's going to help us a lot in terms of reaching a broader audience and keeping the show going. So please do that. Thanks very much. And of course, your support is what keeps the show going. We appreciate it. You know how to support us. I'm sure by now go to politicsguys.com slash support or just go to politicsguys.com and click on the support links you will see there. Also, subscribing to the show helps a lot, as does sharing episodes, as does leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes. If you want to get in touch with us, mail at politicsguys.com. There's also our Facebook page, facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you join us.